J Balvin is the type of star who can sell out arenas. He's one of the biggest names in Latin pop. He's a big deal in the United States, but in Latin America, he's a megastar. He came into the picture in the early 2010s with his album Familia. Isabella Regoza is a Latin music curator for SoundCloud and a freelance music journalist. He popularized what you would call Colombian reggaeton, which is now today synonymous with basically Latin pop. But now, he's in hot water for a music video that stirred up so much controversy, even the Colombian vice president weighed in on it. And J Balvin had to issue an apology. Balvin basically did the please don't cancel me apology statement that everyone does. He said he was sorry to whoever felt offended, especially women in the Black community. He ended his statement with, that's not who I am. I'm about tolerance, love, and inclusivity but a lot of people aren't buying it. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. J Balvin's song, Pera, captures the raunchy rawness of reggaeton. This is J Balvin. But a lot of people are saying the video for the song crosses a line and exemplifies the racism and the misogyny that's present in Latinx entertainment. Pera, which translates to female dog, is the name of the song in question. It was on J Balvin's latest album, Jose, and it features Dominican rapper Tokisha. I asked Isabella Regoza about the song's lyrics. She pulled them up and broke them down for me. And let's just say they're pretty explicit. I'll be very blunt and I'll translate it. I'm a dog in heat looking for a dog to, you know, doggy style. <laughs> Like, roughly, you know, but, it, I mean, it sounds cool in Spanish. He kind of repeats whatever she's saying. Like, yeah, you are a dog and he... So, hey, just be careful. I don't have a vaccine. <laughs> you know, like, dogs need to get vaccinated. <laughs> Reggaeton has a lot of, like, the sexual double entendres. But, yeah, in this case, you can argue, like, it's perreo meaning doggy style, meaning twerking, meaning dog. Earlier this year, Isabella interviewed J Balvin, and she asked him about the song. He said, We wanted to keep empowering women and show that we are the same. If you want to be a dog, then we can be dogs together, straight up. And Tokisha is straight up. She doesn't mess around when it comes to the lyrics. It's pretty PG-13. Now, I didn't know how empowering that was. I didn't really personally feel empowered. But if he's saying, you know what, like, I know there's a community of, like, you know, women that, like, that's what they rap about. Like, you know, Megan the Stallion, for example, right? It's down that someone's being outspoken like that, that someone is representing that side of the genre as well. And they're doing it, like, pretty badass. But it's not the lyrics that really made people mad. It was the music video that dropped in September. J Balvin and Tokisha are both in the video. It was shot in the Dominican Republic, where Takesha is from, and they really stuck to the theme of dogs. Probably too much. Well, you see J Balvin in one clip, which was the controversy of the whole video, where he's walking two Afro-Latinas like they're dogs, like on a leash, and they have kind of prosthetic kind of makeup that makes them look like dogs as well. So it's very demeaning. I, it, it didn't really come off well. It was 
supposed to be supposedly satirical representation of the word dog. But in reality, people are calling it misogynoir. It's misogynistic. And I mean, definitely tone deaf if that wasn't the intention to offend. In addition to seeing J Balvin, who is a white Latino, walking two Afro-Latinas on leashes like dogs, you see other Black men and women with fake dog prosthetics. At one point, Takesha delivers her lyrics from a doghouse. Takesha is considered a sex-positive, push-the-envelope kind of artist. Nowadays, there's been a rise of formidable Black women representing that kind of lyrics, like Nicki Minaj, Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion, you know, embracing that style as well. But in Latin America, it has taken a lot longer for certain Latin communities to accept the female sexual agency as a public art form. So when an artist like Tokisha comes into the picture, it's pretty awesome to definitely see her going toe-to-toe with an artist in the caliber of J Balvin. But Tokisha's sex positivity didn't stop the outrage about the video. Almost immediately when it went up, there were calls to boycott the song and J Balvin. J Balvin is Colombian, and that country's president, Marta Lucia Ramirez, addressed the video in an open letter, and she called J Balvin out by name, saying the video was, quote, direct and openly sexist, racist, and misogynistic. She also said that the video violated the rights of women by comparing them to animals that must be dominated and mistreated. At one point in the controversy, J Balvin's own mom even weighed in when she talked to a Colombian news station and criticized the song, saying, where's the son I know? The backlash was intense. And as you know, the Latin Grammys are coming up. So a couple of weeks ago, J Balvin removed the video from YouTube and issued an Instagram stories apology a week later. His co-star, Takesha, apologized to the people who felt offended, but defended the video as artistic expression. And the director of the video, who is also Takesha's manager, Rami Palos, said the video was taken out of context. I asked Isabella how something like this happened. Was there no one in the room to say, hey, maybe it's not a good idea for J Balvin, a white man, to walk two Black women on leashes? I don't even know how this happened. Like, I'm thinking like, okay, you know what? We're going to be displaying this video to millions of people. The director had said that he wanted to show the asatirical representation of the word perra and that that was taking out of context. But I don't think that they were historically looking at how throughout history, women have been subjugated to racism and misogyny. And, you know, the director being male, I don't think he took that also into consideration. And even like J Balvin is lighter skinned. He's not a Black Afro-Latino artist. And this isn't the first time J Balvin has been called out for missing the mark on race. Last year, during the global Black Lives Matter protests, Balvin and other reggaeton artists, including Bad Bunny, had to apologize for their late and insensitive post. Balvin posted a video of himself dancing with a Black woman and included the hashtag Black Lives Matter. A lot of people felt that the post was tone deaf. He later apologized for it and promised to educate himself. But for a lot of reggaeton fans, this underlines the growing disconnection of the genre from its original Afro-Latin roots. Racism and colorism are ingrained in cultures across Latin America. And just like in the United States, it often shows up in the things people watch to entertain themselves. And there are a lot of Afro-Latina actors and artists 
who've talked about the discrimination they face because they're Black. Amara La Negra is a U.S.-based Dominican artist. If you know about her, you probably first saw her on the reality TV show Love & Hip Hop Miami. On the first season of the show, her storyline kind of revolved around the discrimination she kept facing because she's a dark-skinned Afro-Latina woman who wears her hair in an afro. Here's a particularly cringe-worthy exchange with the producer she was working with on the show. You can see Beyonce just like this, soul sister, the same way you can see her come in a beautiful gown, elegant, breathtaking. So I can't be elegant if I have a fro? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I guess so. And here Amara is talking about racism and colorism in Latin America in a rather infamous Breakfast Club interview. Why is it so hard for people to understand or accept me? Because I just feel like there's this there's standard of beauty in the entertainment industry that you have to look a certain type of way in order to be pretty. Your hair needs to be straight and silky in order to be pretty. Or if you're a Latina, you have to look like J-Lo, Sofia Vergara, Shakira. But when you look like me, oh, you're, you don't look Latina enough. What does that even mean? There isn't a Latin country that doesn't have people that look like myself. So why aren't we on magazine? Why aren't we on movies? Is why aren't we? So it bothers me. And it's not just racism that Afro-Latinas in entertainment deal with. They're also faced with a lot of misogyny. Latin America historically has been ingrained in machismo for so long, like centuries. And even just recently, have we started to see more, not equality, but like a little more representation of, of women. Machismo is, it's misogynistic. And the, the expectation of a woman's role in society You know, it has been ingrained in machismo. And unfortunately, there has been a lot of Latin communities that still haven't really caught up to, you know, just uh, elevating the woman's position in the community. And I definitely think that in this case, it was overlooked. It was overlooked and there was some insensitive situations being displayed. Obviously, it's not going to be cool to show women being walked. It's it's kind of it's pretty insulting, (laughs) like straight up. The combination of racism and sexism we see in the Paradise video is called misogynoir. It's the unique intersectional discrimination that Black women often face. But when we're talking about racism in the U.S. and racism in Latin America, it can be hard for people to understand the parallels because we think about race so differently. In the U.S., we often classify people by race. In Latin America, people are much more likely to identify with their nationality. Remember that Breakfast Club interview we just heard with Amara La Negra? Well, there's this really infuriating part early in the interview where Amara tries to explain race to the host and they just aren't getting it. What are you? Huh? Like race-wise. Oh, okay. <laughs> what, what am I? <laughs> yeah, what are you? No, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm Dominican. We're born and raised in Miami. My parents okay. are Dominican. And um, I'm obviously an Afro-Latina. So, yes. Uh, so, so both your parents deal. are Dominican? Yes, both of okay. my parents are Dominican. Right. My mom still don't know no English a little bit. Um, we're working on that. So what is an Afro-Latina? I thought, I thought that was half black, half something else. That's what I thought it was, too. Half I thought it was Latino. half black, half Latino. Well, the thing is that how, how we see black here in the United States is different. You think black, you think African-American. Right. See, for us in Dominican Republic, because we're all Dominican, you only have but to say you're black. I thought Dominicans didn't really mess with black and Puerto Ricans. I thought they just didn't want, they didn't want to be black and they didn't want to be Puerto Rican. 
And anyway, well, because well, because if you are because if you're Puerto Rican, then that's what you are, and if you're Dominican, that's what you are. So you want to you want to you want to rep what you are or where you come from. So that's pretty much what it is. I don't know how it be out here, but in Miami, everybody's pretty cool. You know, you remember we had Dasha Polanco with an afro. Yeah, I can say I'm Latino. I'm Latina with an afro. Even if I had an afro, I didn't have an afro. I mean, I'm still Afro Latina because I come from African descent. So that's what it is. Ask Isabella Ray goes about this. What people in the U.S. need to understand about race in Latin America? There's something, at least, I mean, in Mexico that we call the third root, meaning that we have a indigenous community, we have the Afro-Latin community, and we have like the community that was colonized by the Spanish. So they're from the European descendants, right? And basically, when we're talking about one culture, one race, you know, being Latin, it has so many contexts, like even just the class disparity is insane. Even when we look at different countries, a country like Dominican Republic has a lot more African population there. If we look at another country like Argentina, it's a lot more colonized by the Italian immigrants, for example, right? So we definitely need to understand the history of that country, specifically like colonization even. And in the United States, the indigenous people here are marginalized in certain areas. So it's the same thing in Latin America. Like we definitely have, you know, people that are in poverty. And usually those are like minorities, usually people of darker skinned, unfortunately. People took issues with the images in Pera because they reinforced dangerous and ugly racial stereotypes about Black people. But another issue at the heart of this debate is about representation and erasure. Isabella told me reggaeton has almost become synonymous with Latin pop. And a lot of the big names in Latin pop today are white presenting or white like J Balvin. But the roots of reggaeton, the pioneers of the genre, are Afro-Latino people. But over the years, their contributions have become less apparent as artists like Daddy Yankee or Nail J Balvin have become the faces of reggaeton. Today, you see a lot of like people singing reggaeton that weren't initially a part of the movement, like Shakira, Enrique Iglesias. And reggaeton does come from the Afro-Latin diaspora, Panama, and then Puerto Rico. A lot of that gets erased, you know, when you have an artist come into the picture and make a hit and they happen to be lighter skinned. That's the unfortunate situation of culture, you know, the, the erasure of the actual Black inventors of a specific genre. Like other genres of music, reggaeton's origins were influenced by several factors. Jamaicans migrated to Panama to build the Panama Canal and the descendants of the Jamaicans who stayed in Panama invented reggae and espanol because they still took their music and they ended up making reggae with a dembo rhythm. Dembo was a style of music that was popularized in Jamaica by Shaba Rank. In 1990, he had a really popular song called Dembo. Dembo, 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 Dembo. The rhythm of that song made it to Panama in another jam by El General called Sambo. And eventually, that sound made it to Puerto Rico. That became really massive. It migrated to Puerto Rico. But also, hip-hop was being invented in New York. So the way that in Puerto Rico it was invented, it was that they took the hip-hop lyrical rap style 
and they fused it with the Jamaican influence tembo, reggae in Espanol, and they created something called reggaeton. Basically, instead of using live instrumentation, they used electronics. They started producing the beats, and this was in clubs. So these were like underground clubs in Puerto Rico with uh, DJ Negro and Nando Boom. You know, these were the artists that were like pioneering the sound. And then you have DJ Playero. Then you have the noise and Evie Queen came later. And all of these people are all black, all Puerto Rican black people that invented the sound. And obviously, you know, it started like taking off, taking off. And when Daddy Yankee came into the picture, he really did globalize it. Until pretty recently, reggaeton was kind of infamous throughout Latin America. Some reggaeton songs are still banned from the radio in the Dominican Republic and Cuba. And throughout the 1990s, it was illegal to even play reggaeton music in Puerto Rico. Like the cops used to break your tapes. They used to confiscate them. It was super underground back then. So the only way to play it was just like in secret, like in secret clubs and like, you know, speakeasies. (laughs) Isabella told me that critics said the lyrics were too vulgar and too crass. And like many olds before them, they said it would corrupt the youth. But through bootleggers and other underground channels, reggaeton made it to Puerto Ricans in New York and beyond. Eventually, reggaeton became accepted in Puerto Rico and popular throughout Latin America. But the original creators of the genre, who started it to grab people's attention, didn't get to really share in the worldwide success. A while ago, I interviewed the key members of The Noise, who are some of the initial inventors, the Black inventors of the rhythm. DJ Negro wanted to take ownership and create a movement. Unfortunately, what happens and what happened with a lot of the members is that, uh, you know, sometimes when somebody invents something, the first person that invents it doesn't really get the credit, but then the person that comes along after does. I asked Isabella, as a person who covers Latin pop and is a fan of a lot of the popular artists today, like J Balvin, how she thinks about this erasure when she listens to the music and what artists could do to acknowledge those that came before them. You know what? Like, we adapt something because it was kind of handed to us, but definitely know, like, what you're consuming, what you're representing. Like, how was this created? Like, what kind of work did it take for someone to really unleash this genre into the public? That's why I think it's important to give credit where it's due. When you start really kind of, like, reaping the benefits of, like, stardom, you have a choice and the choice is, do you want to just elevate yourself and be the thief of glory? <laughs> or do you want to definitely recognize the people that really did create something as a form of resistance? Hip hop, samba, even like the capoeira, like these are all like dances and genres that were created from like African diaspora, the black communities. And it was always because it was some kind of resistance against, like, the mainstream. So I think it's cool that it globalized this massively and that there are some artists giving it the proper representation. But I don't think it should be lost because it would be a disservice to the people that came before you. When we come back, we've got a little something extra. 
We're spilling the beans, you might say, on a story you've probably seen making the rounds about a controversial royal wedding. And it's all brought to you by Javalia. So grab a cup of coffee and we'll be right back. Last week, Japan's now former Princess Mako married her college sweetheart, Kei Kimura, after the two had been publicly dating for years. Mako was a royal, and her beau is a commoner. It's giving Harry and Meghan vibes. But unfortunately, you won't see any photos of a grand wedding or the princess in her traditional kimono. The couple decided to keep it super low-key. They registered their marriage and then held a press conference, of course. Princess Mako thanked their supporters and said her husband meant everything to her. He said he also loved her, that you only live once, and that he wanted to be with the person he loved. It seems sweet and innocent, right? But there's a whole lot of drama brewing around this wedding. People in Japan protested because of this wedding. And on its surface, it just seems like the princess married her college sweetheart who has a good job at an NYC law firm and they're going to live happily ever after. It's the stuff Hallmark movies are made of. But it turns out, this wedding tells us a lot about Japanese culture, patriarchy, and the future of the royal empire. I wanted to know everything about this marriage. So I called up Michelle Lee. She's the Washington Post Tokyo bureau chief where she covers Japan and the Koreas. First up, Princess Mako isn't the first member of the royal family to marry a commoner. In fact, it's pretty common. And it's not as though the princess and her husband were a surprise. They've been engaged publicly since 2017. So I asked Michelle why them getting married stirred up such a big controversy. Over the past four years, the public mood has really soured. There have been some financial disputes that became public since their engagement involving Kei Kimura's mom and her ex-fiance. It's a little bit complicated. But because of this financial dispute, people started getting really mad. They started doubting whether he was fit for the princess. They started calling him a gold digger, started digging into other parts of his life and his mom's life. And it just started piling on since then. And after it started snowballing, it was almost like he just couldn't do anything right anymore. Like he showed up in Japan a couple of weeks ago to get married and it turned out like his hair had grown since the public had last seen him and he came wearing a ponytail and people were incensed. Like the ponytail itself was making headlines. I was seeing the ponytail like on front pages of newspapers and on the news. Like every show was about the ponytail because hair itself is a big deal in Japan and people were like, oh, well, this is another sign of his disrespect. And they just became very upset about this whole ordeal. There were protesters marching the streets, holding signs, demanding answers about the mom's financial dispute, calling him just all sorts of names. And the princess developed symptoms of PTSD as a result. So by the time they got married, they did not have a major wedding. They typically have a traditional wedding where the public can see it, but the family denied it for the princess because they said that it's not a celebratory event for the public anymore. And they just simply submitted their marriage papers at the registry. Actually, a staff member of the Imperial Housing Agency did it for them. And then as a result of marrying a commoner, the princess has lost her royal status, so she has left the imperial family. She is just Mako Kamuro now. 
and they are planning to move to the United States, most likely New York. There were people marching the streets to protest the day that she got married. And actually the organizer of the protest said that they're going to continue protesting even after they move to the United States because they want to continue showing their discontent over this situation. And this is highly unusual. Like something like this doesn't happen in Japan. It's not like in Britain where people know the royal family, they're very public. In Japan, they're almost considered like mythical. They regard them very, very highly. And part of that emotion around just being so angry about Kei Kimura daring to marry the princess comes from that feeling about the imperial family that you have to be at a certain level of dignity and honor in order to be qualified for the royal family, even if it means that she's going to leave the royal family. The public wants to see that she's leaving for someone that the public agrees with. So not only did the princess lose her royal status, she also turned down the nearly $1.3 million dowry that's traditionally given when someone leaves the royal family. It's kind of like a consolation gift for her to say, hey, we know that you have to leave the royal family because you want to marry this guy. Here is a taxpayer gift for your marriage. She was the first princess to turn down that money. And it became a big deal because that's a message on its own. She's saying, look, I am not going to take taxpayer money. I will pay for the wedding, or it didn't end up being a wedding, but she announced that she and her husband were paying for the news conference the day of their wedding themselves, which was also extraordinary too. And partly that taxpayer money is kind of why the public has felt so invested in their marriage anyway, because their money was going to go toward her marrying him. And she's saying, I'm not going to be a burden on the taxpayers at all. Michelle told me that Princess Mako deciding to unprincess herself is a big deal for a lot of reasons. Once you leave the royal family, you can't come back. Even if you get divorced, you can't come back. If you have sons, they do not have a pass to the throne either. And that's tough because there aren't many options for royal women to marry other royals in Japan. So they either lose their status or decide to never get married because they don't want to leave the family. And women cannot ascend to the throne in Japan at all. It's a law. One that's becoming a problem for the Imperial House of Japan. The entire family has 17 members, and there are only three people in the line of succession. And only one of those people is under the age of 55. It's actually a dire crisis that the Japanese Imperial family is facing, and it has led to debates within the government about whether they need to change the laws or not, because they're running out of people. And that's something that has to change at some point. And people in Japan have considered changing the law that specifies a male heir to the throne before, but that effort was put to bed when the emperor's nephew was born in 2006. There have been some discussions around it, and because it may involve some legislative changes, that's also why the public has been very interested, because it, it involves government changes and you know taxpayer resources to try to make this happen. But when it was a real crisis before the prince was born, there were huge debates about whether to actually do it. And then when this prince was born, then the imperial family kind of decided, well, it's no longer as big of a crisis anymore. We do have a male heir. So it kind of died down after that. So within the past, like just over a decade or so, there have not been huge major efforts to do something like that. But now this debate has been sparked again. So this issue has really highlighted some of the long-standing concerns over the treatment of women and how women are viewed 
in the Japanese society. When it comes to developed countries, women's rights and the equality of women, Japan is quite behind the other developed countries. And so when it comes to an issue like Mako and her marriage and her decisions and what she's allowed to do, not allowed to do, what she has a right to as a woman, it's really sparked a lot of underlying questions about how the country and its laws and systems are set up to treat women and how they're viewed and the value that they're are, are seen with. And so it's not just been an imperial family issue, it's been a very deep societal issue here in Japan. And that's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. But I work with one of the baddest teams in audio to make it all happen. The show's producer is Alicia Key. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Our director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Thanks to Kira Long for putting the J Balvin story on our radar this week. And a big thanks to Isabella Regoza and Michelle Lee for talking to us. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. And we'll see you back here next week.